0: Thankful today. I want to let y'all know that I did not invent pastor appreciation month <coughs> Didn't come up with it But we pastors always talk about it and I will say things like hey If you'll let your church know it's pastor appreciation month I mean you'll let my church know it's pastor appreciation month. And I'll let your church know and we can Call his radio or somebody make sure they tell everybody. Um No, i'm truly thankful to be here. What a blessing it is. Eight months, just a little over eight months. So uh, I know that may seem like an attorney for some of you, but I'm, I'm truly thankful. Uh, God is good. Great, great staff to work with. Uh, great uh, volunteers serving and working here. It's just a, just been a, a wonderful time. So I'm thankful on behalf of me and my family and just this month, how gracious you've been with your kind notes and everything else. Just always a blessing. So I preach today, thankful now. Some people have told me that I preach better when I'm angry. Um, y'all laugh more than the first service about that joke. but uh, so we'll see how this we'll see how this works out. But if you will, turn with me to Isaiah chapter six. We're continuing in our series, the Gospel according to Isaiah. We began it last week. And as I said before, we're hitting those peaks. Isaiah is such a glorious uh, book of the Bible, and we're hitting those peaks throughout the book that, that take us to that mountaintop, if you will, to see God's glory revealed ultimately and finally through his son, Jesus Christ. And so this morning, we're going to look at chapter six, a uh, very important chapter, a very uh, rich chapter one, and the whole scheme of the scriptures themselves uh, uh, is vital for us to understand and know, and God, like he always does, comes with just the right time. We saw last week uh, the book of Isaiah in and of itself is an invitation. God is inviting his people to return to him. They have turned away. God has continued to be faithful. He's continued to be good to his people. But his people have turned away from him. So he says, as we saw in chapter 1, come, let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they can be as white as snow. Or again, in Isaiah chapter 2, verse 5, O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. So the desire is for the Lord to, to be with his people as he saved them and redeemed them, to bring them into his marvelous light and glory and for them to know his goodness. And even though their sins are great, he will forgive them and make them whiter than snow. But the people do not return. And as you look for these first couple chapters of Isaiah, especially chapter 1 through 5, we see this again. And we get to Isaiah chapter 5, and it says, Woe to those, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness. Instead of coming into the light as the Lord invited them to, they've loved the darkness. Instead of coming into God who is good and faithful, they've loved what is evil. And they've even flipped the script a little bit to say what is evil is actually good. And so instead of returning to the Lord, they have not, they have stayed away from him. They've stayed in their sins, if you will. So he says in chapter 5, verse 21, woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. And in verse 30, the last verse of chapter 5, he says, He says, they will growl over it on that day like the growling of the sea. And if one looks to the land, behold, darkness and distress, and the light is darkened by its clouds. In other words, because of the sinfulness of Israel, because the people have not returned, have not been faithful as God is faithful, darkness rests over them. Because of their sin, darkness rests over them. God's people did not heed the invitation from the Lord. And as one pastor points out, as darkness descends on the people, only a radical act of God's grace can bring light to the darkness. Only a radical act of God's goodness and kindness can change that darkness into light. And that's where we are when we come to Isaiah chapter 6. The people are in desperate need of a radical act, if you will. A radical act of God's grace. And so let's read this passage together. I'm going to read the whole chapter. Just to see, get it in this full context of what happens. Knowing that the people have not responded to God's invitation to come, darkness is now settling in over the land. Isaiah 6 begins. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. And with two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing but do not understand. Keep on seeing but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their eyes heavy and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste and the Lord removes people far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land and though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. And we thank you, God, because we know that without you giving us your word, we would not know. But now, Father, because you have revealed yourself to us through the proclamation, the giving of your word, through the prophet Isaiah that has been kept for us all of these years, now we can truly know who you are and what you have done for us. And so, Father, help us this morning to catch just a glimpse of this. While it's difficult for us to do so, help us just to catch a glimpse this morning of this glory and majesty and holiness of God. Father, we know that when we know you rightly, then we'll truly understand our place and our desperate need. And when we truly know you and understand our need, Father, then and only then can we truly look to the place, the only place that we can find hope for our need in the midst of it. And so God, help us to do that this morning. Help us to know you better, to know ourselves better. And to see Christ for who he is and what he has done on our behalf, Savior and Lord. All by your grace and for your glory we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. A movie I watched way more than I wanted to growing up was The Wizard of Oz. My grandparents across the street were the first ones to have cable. And so they had a TV that was a piece of furniture. It's about six feet long and the screen was about two feet wide and they got cable and that little wire came out the back you know this is before you had remote controls or you had remote controls and you know the joke it was me the wire came out it was about 30 feet long and it was had a box where you push these buttons to change the channel and I thought this was the best so I always wanted to spend a night over there but when you get over there and it's on the weekend on TBS the Wizard of Oz seemed to come on every single weekend And it was one of the only shows my grandma would let me watch. And so I would watch it over and over again. And I hadn't seen it in some time, but I still remember the songs. I still remember the scenes. uh, And many of them stand out. I thought the coolest thing in the world were the flying monkeys. I really did. They were scary. They were thrilling. They were terrifying at the same time, you know. And, And I thought this was incredible. And I wasn't scared of the witch. She was, I mean, whatever. But the monkeys were something. I remember the scene where I finally understood the phrase, a horse of a different color. Y'all remember what I'm talking about? They finally get to Oz and every time it goes away from the horse, the horse comes back and it's a different color. I was like, that's what it means. I don't think it is, but... The movie had a climax the travelers had come they finally they had some things but they're trying you know Dorothy's trying to get back to Kansas and as she does she collects this band of friends and they all need something and they know the great Wizard of Oz can get it to them so they're trying to get to Oz and they got to get into the room where Oz is and they go through all of the stuff they got to go get the the broom they got to go get some other stuff and finally they have done it all and they get into that room where Oz is the climax of the movie the one who can help them And Oz is terrifying. It's like this big screen, and he's screaming and yelling at them, and who dares go in there? And he's doing all this stuff, and they're scared, you know, and they've done it all. And then finally, the sane one in the bunch, the dog Toto, (laughs) runs over, if you remember, and pulls the string over on the side, and the curtain comes back. And Oz is not some incredible figure, some majestic, glorious figure. He's a little, old, balding white man who's real short and has really no power whatsoever, right? The curtain was pulled back, and what's on display is not this great and glorious Oz, but just this little dude who really looks at him and says, I I, I really don't have any way to help you. Well, ultimately, in Isaiah chapter 6, What happens here is it begins with the phrase in the year that King Uzziah died 2nd Chronicles chapter 26 tells us that Uzziah reigned a long time and he was prosperous He reigned probably approximately 52 to 56 years And in the early days he was he was faithful to God in the early days in the early part of his reign He had done well and led the people of Judah to follow after the Lord and the Lord had prospered them But his prosperity in this midst of it, it had turned and he began to think it was because of his own ideas. He began to think it was because of his own charisma, if you will, his own power that made Israel or Judah great. His prosperity made him known amongst the nations and the scriptures tell us that this would begin his downfall. And at the midst of this, though the prosperity had been there, he'd led the people into a day and age that they were calling evil good and good evil. He'd led them, though they had been prosperous at the beginning, into a time where darkness is now settled in on the land. And this statement here is important because many people in Judah believed that it was Uzziah that had brought this prosperity and peace. Many people in Judah believed that it was Uzziah. He'd reigned for such a long time. He's been such a good king to us. And even though his pride had brought in this evil, his pride had brought in darkness, they said, We have had everything we need, right? We have our homes. We have our land. We have all of our uh, belongings. We can go to the grocery store and get the food we want. So we're fine. We're prosperous here, and everything's good. We're thankful for Uzziah. But anytime time there's a change in leadership, it comes with great uncertainty. It comes with great worry or concern. So in Isaiah 6, it says, it was the year King Uzziah died. What is it that the people are trusting in? What is it that they're holding fast to? Uzziah is now dead. He was the king who led them and made them prosperous, right? He was the one who had done all of these things. And now Uzziah is dead. They're trusting in him. But his death is going to bring turmoil. It's going to bring turnover. It's going to bring change. It's going to bring uncertainty, uneasiness. They don't know what is coming. So you can see the tension level rising here for Israel. And so it's at this point that the Lord comes to Isaiah. Isaiah. And what you have in Isaiah 6 is the curtain is being pulled back. You thought this was Uzziah reigning. You thought that he was in charge. But in Isaiah chapter 6, the curtain is being pulled back. And now we're going to get a glimpse of who really is behind the curtain, if you will. Now we're going to glimpse, get a glimpse of who really is in charge, who really rules and reigns on the throne. And what we will see is that it's not some old white dude with balding white hair and is losing it and he really has no power. We're, what we're going to see is who is sitting on the throne is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, That this is the one who is reigning. He's going to pull a curtain back here in Isaiah six and to show us who's in control, who's in charge. And as the curtain is pulled back, Isaiah sees the glory of the everlasting God. As it sees this curtain pulled back, he sees the glory of an everlasting God sitting on his throne in charge of all things and everything is in his hands. One who is unapproachable, unimaginable, incredible, more than he could ever possibly describe or know. But what he is going to do is try to describe it for us this morning. So my prayer because I know our words are weak in this. I know my ability to paint this picture is not any better than Isaiah's himself. My prayer is that by the power of the Spirit, even with us working in the Word, that we too this morning can get a glimpse of God's holiness. That we too this morning can get a glimpse of this throne room vision that Isaiah has and what it means for each and every one of us. What Isaiah sees is there is a king who reigns. There is a king who reigns. As the curtain is pulled back, uncertainty in the land, darkness settling in, Isaiah gets a glimpse into the throne room, and he says, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. Here it says we sees when he looks into the throne room. He sees the Lord seated on a throne He doesn't say the throne as if there's only one and and my point here is not to say that that there's many different Um contextualizations of this throne throughout history. What it is here is he says I see him on a throne It's not King Uzziah's throne. It's not the king of the Canaanites throne It's not the king of the Hittites throne. It's not the king of the Babylonians throne It's not any of theirs. There's many thrones out there. This one I I am seeing is high and lifted up. In other words, this throne is greater than all the other thrones. This throne is the one that is superior above all the rest. This throne is the one, this throne is the one that has all authority and power given to it. I saw a throne high and lifted up. You can stack all the other thrones in the world together and all the kings sit on them, even Uzziah, and it is not a throne compared to this throne. This throne is high and lifted up. This throne has all authority behind it. This throne has all superiority behind it. And when I see him on this throne, the the very train of his robe is filling the temple. In other words, he is filling this place up. His presence has filled this place, the center of it all. This is his territory. This is his place. And you can't even take a step without knowing this is his place. This is his throne room. He's in control. He's in charge. God's presence has filled the place, and Isaiah sees him sitting there. And before Isaiah can even process him on this throne that is superior and greater than all other thrones, he begins to hear. He begins to hear praise. Above him stood the seraphim, Each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Here we have this word, he says, I saw these seraphim, above them stood the seraphim. The word seraphim is a transliteration just straight from the Hebrew word. It's in the plural. So it's it's a plural word, and what it literally means is burning ones burning ones. These creatures are here and they are on fire. They are on fire. Now, as we look, we're not really sure how many of them are in here in this room, but there is another place in scripture where the curtains pulled back, by the way, in Revelation chapter 4 it says and he puts it as a door the door to heaven is open and He's looking into heaven And when he looks in the creatures around the throne that are constantly singing praise to god It says they number myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands This would put us in millions if you will of those who are surrounding the throne these burning ones these Seraphim and why are they on fire? Because they are constantly if they're going to be in the presence of god. They are constantly having to be purified no impurity can creep in, and fire brings purity, and it gives a symbol of their constant need for purity. As Pastor Ray Ortland has said, they are living flames of pure, nuclear-powered praise. As they sit in this room, uh, or they stand in this room here, hovering above, one after another, calling back to another: Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And also, we should have an assumption here that I think is okay for us to make, that these creatures, these seraphim, are sinless creatures. Yet these sinless creatures are not even able to look upon the Lord. These sinless creatures are not even able to look for their wings have to cover their eyes and these sinless creatures are not even able to stand They are hovering they are flying because when you stand in the presence of God What does the scripture say you must do take off your sandals you're on holy ground? So they have to hover constantly and their feet are not worthy to be in his presence So they cover them as well Even these seraphim know that they must always be burning They must always be being purified to be in his presence and they are not even able to look upon him because of his holiness holiness but yet they're calling back and forth back and forth to each other holy 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 is the Lord of hosts the whole earth is full of his glory one would scream out. And another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. A whole earth is full of his glory. Back and forth and back and forth, never ceasing, never stopping in such a way. So as then when Isaiah looks up into the throne room, they're doing it. When John looks up into the throne room, they're doing it. For the beginning of a the time, they've been doing it. For God is always worthy of praise. And praise will be coming forth at all times for his name. Here. This is not to them a duty, but the image of something that is a delight for them. It's as if you're seeing it. You know, think of your camp days, you know what I'm saying? The camp days, whenever you got your your teams together and you got to come up with a cheer. That was always my favorite part. That's, That's kidding. But you would do it back and forth, right? We got the Spirit. Yes, we do. We got the Spirit. How about you? And the next group would do it louder, and then the next group would do it louder, right? And you'd do it back and forth and back and forth until you just get tired and wearing out. You would never, imagine never getting tired and wearing out of proclaiming, holy, holy, holy is this one. Delighting in his holiness. Praising him. Glorying in him. And so much so that every time you see him or you look upon him again, you feel the glory of it. the thrill it was a joy for them as they worshiped God singing out about his holiness and the Bible speaks of God's holiness quite often it calls it majestic his holiness is majestic he speaks of his holiness saying it is incomparable there there's not a way that you can compare anything else to God and his holiness it's incomparable Or Psalm 29 we see the splendor of God's holiness. The holiness of God is not just another attribute of God We know he's omniscient. He knows everything. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere He's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. These are attributes of God, right? But holiness is not just another attribute in this thing like he's good faithful and holy It's not just one amongst the others No holiness is the sum of all of his attributes to their final and complete degree. The holiness is the sum of everything that he is, all of it, infinitely more than we can possibly know or imagine. His holiness speaks to all of his glory, all of his splendor, all of his marvelous attributes. Everything that there is, they're looking at him and saying, he is perfect, holy, holy, holy. And the repetition here is not just them trying to to, to, to beat that into the system or into our heads, if you will, of how holy he is. The repetition here goes towards the intensity of his holiness. This is how great he is. The way the Bible speaks, if you will, in all caps or in bold print, is by doing repetition. Holy, holy, holy. It's adding to intensity, it's adding emphasis to it. In other words, he is more holy than we can know or imagine. Each one, each holy boosts the intensity of the one before. Remember my first time in South Asia in the country working there They show great honor and respect, but when somebody came in Somebody came in who was the leader of the town and instead of just simply saying sir how they would respond. They said sir 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 Every time they addressed him I asked them, what in the word are y'all doing? That sounds like a lot of words Because when someone is greatly uh, of great importance, we have to emphasize their honor over and over again. So it is here. When we see the holiness of God, it's not just enough to say it one time. It's not just enough to say it twice. It's enough for us to say it over and over and over again because it is great. And they're praising God constantly, speaking of his holiness, and heaven cannot even contain it. For it says the whole earth is full of his glory. God's glory and holiness cannot even be contained in one spot in heaven All of earth is full of it, which is a whole nother sermon in and of itself One of my favorite books I try to read this book every year. It's a short book. So that should help you A.W. Tozer's the knowledge of the holy In this book I was reading through and looking at several commentaries Just kind of looking at Isaiah 6 and I noticed that every single one of them quoted Tozer Quoted Tozer in his book is trying to speak or get us to understand how who God is and what he's done for us Get us to understand his majesty and his splendor understand his holiness. That's his whole desire in it Listen to what he says He says we must not think of god as the highest in in an ascending order of beings Starting with the single cell going up to the fish the bird the animal man angel cherub god It's not as if god is the highest Of this ascending order of creatures. God is as high above an archangel as above a caterpillar. For the gulf that separates the archangel and the caterpillar is but finite, while the gulf gulf between God and an archangel is infinite. In other words, God is so incomparable to anything that we know or understand, that we cannot fully comprehend how much. All we can do is hold fast to these passages and try to give us a glimpse of it. And all we can hope is that the Spirit of God will teach us and show us how great and glorious he is. In fact, Tozer puts it this way, and I love this quote. God is infinitely greater than our greatest thought of him. Just for a moment, think your greatest thought, you can think of who God is and what he's done. Think your greatest thought of God. And Tozer says, and I think he's exactly right, God is infinitely greater than your greatest thought can possibly be. And what Isaiah is seeing as this curtain is pulled back is that's exactly the case He's doing his best to describe it for us, but there's no way we can pull all this in with mere words alone. What he sees is more glorious than he can imagine. Think of that. God's perfection, there's nothing like it. God's holiness, there's nothing like it. God's glory, there's nothing like it. So it's no surprise that when he he speaks, the earth quakes. The thresholds tremble. Why? Because he's the one who spoke the earth and the thresholds into existence so, when he, when he speaks, the very creator is speaking, and they're saying, We're listening, God. For you are holy and you're majestic. We're listening to you. And so, here Isaiah sees it, and he does his best to describe it for us. He gets this glimpse, if you will, and it's hard for us to even imagine. But this is who we proclaim. This is who we want to exalt and lift up. This is who we must answer to. What's right in this passage? What's right in this passage for us today is to even consider our own time. Consider our own time as a people here in our place, in our context. Is it not the case that there are many around us who say evil is good and good is evil? Is it not the case that there's many around us, just like John chapter 3 says, do not come into the light because they prefer the darkness more than the light? because the darkness hides their own sins and they don't want their sins to be known or seen. Is it not the case that we have great uncertainty now? And even in our own time, as we look to the future, I'm concerned about my own children and my grandchildren and what kind of world will they inherit? Is it not the case that we are even terrified of what may come in the news tomorrow for what we have seen over the last couple years is just that we don't know what might be next. And you want to make a prediction, have at it. Because none of us can tell. And it just may be the case that the worst news is in front of us, not behind us. But what we've seen and what we know is that God is on the throne. He's at the same place he was in Genesis chapter 3 when Adam and Eve fell. He's at the same place he was when... The earth was flooding by water coming up and coming down. And he was protecting Noah there on that ark, even in judgment. He's at the same place he was while the Israelites were in bondage in Egypt for 400 years. He's at the same place he was while the people of God were coming out of Egypt in charge and in control, leading them to the promised land. He's at the same place he was even when Jesus Christ was on the, th- on the cross. God never stepped down. He never moved. No one can take his throne from him because it's high and lifted up and none of us can ascend to such a place. And so whatever throne this world may have and whatever it may offer, it is nothing compared to the one our God sits on. And he's never abdicated. He's never left it. And so even in the midst of our own context, when people are calling evil good and good evil and darkness may be sitting on the land, we still can pull the curtain back and know he's in charge. And we can trust him. But when we do that, we also recognize the response that Isaiah has. Nothing was said to Isaiah. The curtain just simply opened up and he looked. And when he saw, his response was, woe is me. I'm lost. I love how he says, I'm lost. In other words, he's saying, I don't need to be in here, Right? This is not a place for me. I don't deserve to be in this presence. I don't deserve to be in this room. I'm lost. I shouldn't even be here. I'm a man of unclean lips. I'm in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Why? Because my eyes have seen the Lord of hosts. And here Isaiah's despair is understood because he's comparing himself to the holy one that stands before him. Woe is me. Why? Because he's not comparing himself to the people around him, the sinful people he's trying to talk to. He's not comparing himself to his friends or to his family, to those who came before who those who may come after him. He recognizes that all those comparisons are futile and useless. That the one thing that matters the most is what does that one on the throne think of me? That's what truly matters. Not what anybody else thinks, but what does he think? That's right. He's the one in charge. You recognize and know that. He's the one who can do whatever he wishes to me even now. What does he think about me? And what Isaiah says is, woe is me. I'm in a bad spot. Why? Because he is holy and I am not. And the very radical nature of God's grace, how his amazing grace, the very radical nature of God's grace is found in the indescribable glory of his holiness. Why? Why? because this is what he requires of us he says be holy for i am holy and just if you think that's an old testament passage quote it again in peter be holy for the lord is holy he tells us without holiness no one will see the lord in hebrews without holiness no one will see it and what does isaiah realize i'm lost i don't need to be here i'm unclean i'm unworthy i'm not holy he's holy And what we know is the same thing Isaiah knows. We will never be holy unless God makes us holy. And that's the very nature of his grace. When you see the gap between God's holiness His infinite holiness. and our sinfulness, we recognize we can never cross this bridge ourselves. We can never fix this gap. That if we must be holy like he's holy, then we got a long way to go and we can't get there from here. Something must happen. A radical act must take place. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. This radical act will come for Isaiah and one of the seraphim flying toward him with a coal, a burning coal from the altar. The altar is God's, representing God's holiness So that which is holy must make that which is unholy, Isaiah, his lips, his mouth, his life, that which is holy must make that which is unholy holy again. And so he needed something holy to make him holy. And so this coal comes and it touches him and now he's declared holy again because that which is holy has declared him holy and made him holy. All of us in this room You've heard me say this before, and it should not come as a surprise to you, and I hope it doesn't. All of us in this room are guilty because of our own sin before a holy God. All of us in this room have not sought after holiness, but we've turned our backs from him, and we're just like oftentimes these ones in Isaiah where the Lord says, come and reason with me. Instead of coming and reason with God to hear that though our sins be as scarlet, they can be as white as snow. We continue in our sins. Come into the light. Instead of coming into the light, we continue in the darkness. And we too must be made holy by by God himself because we are unclean. And all of us are in a desperate place and a desperate need of cleansing. But our hope, our hope is still there. Why? Though God is infinitely holy and we are unrighteous and cannot approach him, the Bible tells us there's still hope that something can happen for you that can make you holy and righteous before God. And what is that? If you flip with me or turn quickly here to John chapter 12, you'll find what Jesus says. Jesus had been talking. These Greeks had come up to him. It's after the the triumphal entry where they sang Hosanna, glory to God, this is him. And people were saying, hey, we need to know. We need some more signs. We need to make sure it's you. We need to know. Some Greeks came up to him and said, we want to see Jesus. We need to talk to him to make sure he's the one. And Jesus had spurned them all. And he said even to the Greeks, you want to see me? You'll see me soon enough. Soon enough, I'll be lifted up. And you'll see me on the cross. That's all you need to see. And Jesus says, or John says there in the second part of verse 36 when Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Isaiah 53 Lord, who has believed what is heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, Isaiah 6, he quotes Isaiah 6. He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn. And I would heal them. And so in other words, he's quoting here this passage from Isaiah 6. They saw my glory. It's been seen. They've seen the signs. They've seen the things I've done. They've heard my teaching and still they do not believe. So for us in here today, we may say the same thing. If we could just see some miracles take place, then we'll believe. If we could just see the glory of God like Isaiah did, just pull the curtain back this morning, and I pray he does. Just pull it back this morning. If we could just see a glimpse of that. But what I'm telling you is that we don't need that glory to be revealed for us because it has already been revealed in Jesus Christ. For Isaiah here, it says, it gives us a little narration. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. It's talking about Jesus. In other words, when the curtain is pulled back, right, And Isaiah looks into the throne room. Who is it that's on the throne? Jesus Christ, the Lord, it says here in John. The eternal God who's been with him forever, he's there on the throne. Isaiah looks on the throne and sees Jesus ruling and reigning. Jesus says, that was me he saw sitting there. He saw my glory. But you, you are seeing something far greater, he says. Why is he seeing something far greater? He says, because I'm going to come, and I'm going to be high and lifted up again. But this time, I'm not being high and lifted up on a throne that sits in heaven. I'm going to be high and lifted up on a cross. And there, what is holy will come down and make what is unholy, holy again. There on the cross, I'll step into darkness. The earth will quake one more time. Everything will shake again. You better know it. Darkness will come down, but on the other side of that darkness is a glorious light that you can never know or understand ultimately he says that's me that's me and what we know today is we don't necessarily need to look in the throne room to know God rules and reigns look to the cross of Jesus Christ and there he died he who is holy making what is unholy clean again and each and every one of us today if we are holy before God it's because Jesus through his precious life given for us has made us holy He has put us and brought us and welcomed us in so that when I enter into heaven, I'm not coming on my own behalf. I'm not stepping in with my own esteem. I'm not stepping in on my own merits or my own righteousness. When I step into heaven, I got to have one accompany me and says to the Father on the throne, this one is mine. This one's with me. And just know this for all eternity. If Jesus, for some reason, has to step outside of heaven, just know that I got to go with him. Because I'm only there on his behalf. I'm only there because of his stead. He which is holy has made me, which is unholy, clean again and welcome me into the presence of the holy God. So here, Jesus says, this is what's happened. You're looking for more signs and here I am. You're looking for a little more something, but here I am. You want to see me, look to the cross. And when I'm lifted up, I'll draw all men to myself. But here's what it says. Verse 43. They would not put out, verse 42, they would not follow him. Even though they say they believed in him for fear of the Pharisees, they wouldn't confess it. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. I truly believe that this Statement right here is the very problem or concern for more than we want to imagine in here You're concerned more about more about the glory that comes from man You're concerned for approval from someone else. What will they think of me? What will they believe about me? What will they know about me? You're concerned about approval from everybody else when what really matters and the only thing that matters for you is what God thinks of you The only thing that truly matters today is what the Lord thinks of you and what he thinks of you is that he sent his son to reveal his glory in such a way that what was was holy will touch what is unholy. That he sent his son to die on your behalf on the cross and though your sins be as scarlet, he will wash them whiter than snow. That's what you need to know. Do not trade the glory of God for the glory of men. Know that our only hope for being appropriate in the throne room of God is that God would touch us with the holiness of his son, display to us the grace that we cannot imagine or even understand and comprehend by making that which was unclean, clean again. Holy. The only hope we have, the only hope we have is Jesus. And that, my friends, is enough. Let's pray to him. Father, we thank you that we are touched today not by a burning coal, but the blood of Christ. That what is available to us is far more glorious than we could ever possibly know or understand that you have sent Christ Jesus. Your glory has been revealed in him. My prayer and desire, Father, is that you would not hold it against us in this room, not hold it against these people, that I haven't been clear enough, that maybe I haven't spoken boldly enough. God, please don't hold whatever I did against them. Help them to see, in spite of my own failures, the glory of your word and your truth. Help them to see the image of Jesus Christ today and know him for all of his glory. Pull the curtain back from their blinded eyes so that they can see Jesus, the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. God, your word is true. And I thank you for how you have always given us exactly what we need. And today, Father, we need to see that curtain pulled back and your glory revealed. We need to see Jesus high and lifted up on our behalf. And we need to see, Father, our sins can be forgiven and our life can be made new. And we who were unholy can be made holy again and welcomed into your kingdom. All because of what Christ Jesus has done. Help us to see that now. We're dependent upon you for everything, Lord. Including this. We titled this sermon series, The Gospel According to Isaiah. In it, we have seen God and his holiness, man and his sinful despair, and Christ revealed as the only hope we have. Now the time for response has come. Because every time the gospel is preached, you're either moving toward God or further away from him. And so today, as we sing this song, if you know that you have loved the glory of men more than the glory of God, today I would ask that the Lord would open your hearts to see, open your eyes to know that the only hope you have is Christ. I'll be standing here. Others would love to talk with you. Come forward and let us know that today, maybe today you have seen him. You have seen him. Father, we thank you that your gospel comes to us in so many ways for so many hearts. Father, may that be revealed in each and every heart today. Let's stand together and sing.